Land. I'm Heather and this is Amy. Hello! Join us as we take a trip back in time to the 1920s and 30s in Minneapolis and discover the city's underworld. If you've not yet listened to the previous episode, Battle of Bullets, or any of those before it, I recommend you check them out as this will make much more sense if you have heard those. If you have listened before, you'll know that Volstedland tells the stories of some unsavory characters and the shit they get into. Some of the details might be unsettling to some more sensitive listeners. This is not for kids. Also, we swear. Please proceed with that in mind. I guess it doesn't hurt to remind you that we do not intend to glorify the people whose stories we are telling. We understand that they caused a lot of harm to a lot of people, and we don't want to ignore that. But as you'll come to see, at least Kid Can, Izzy as we occasionally call him, also protected people and was quite generous with his time and money. And his story is just really interesting. Also, we wanted to let you know that we now have merch. Honestly, we just really wanted t-shirts for ourselves, and so I made some. But you can get them too. They just say Volstead Land on the top, then a picture of an old-timey microphone, and then under that it says Minnesota's True Crime in the 1920s and 30s. I know, not terribly creative, but it's just our very first one. The OG, if you will. We'll make more once we get some more artwork. But you can order yours today by going to the link in our socials on our website, and I'll put it in the show notes, too. I had promised in an earlier episode to let you all know what gave me the idea for this podcast. I alluded to the fact that it was something our friend Melissa had experienced, but I wanted to leave it at that. Melissa Oliveri is the creator, producer, writer, host, and composer for the podcast The Skylark Bell. It is a young adult story she started writing many years ago and just recently finished and made it into a podcast. But she has a very interesting story about when she and her husband were our realtors and were showing our house a few years ago when we were selling it. I got on a Zoom call with Melissa and she told the whole story. I will put the story section in here. And then uh, if you want later, you can go and listen to the entire conversation, which has some other stuff in it, too. Here we go. We're here today talking to my friend, Melissa Oliveri. Melissa is the creator, writer, host, producer of the Skylark Bell podcast. Oh, and she also composes a new song for each episode. She also wrote the gorgeous theme song for my sister podcast, Collected Sounds. And in Volstead Land, you'll hear her. Hi, friends. Welcome to season five of The Activity Continues, a paranormal podcast. I'm Amy, the producer and host of this show, along with Megan and the other Amy. We are three soul friends who love to talk about the Dead Files TV show, along with other spooky and spooky adjacent things. We are just starting our third year, and it's going to be the best one yet. Hi, everyone. I'm Megan, our resident scaredy cat. (laughs) I love this stuff, but it absolutely terrifies me. (laughs) It doesn't terrify me. Me neither. Most of the time. 
Hey everyone, I'm the other Amy, sometimes referred to as Amy, ABP, or AP. And I'm the voice of reason in the chaos, trying to keep these two spooky, goofy, lovely ladies in line. <laughs> We're creating a community of like-minded friends who love to discuss all things paranormal. Along with our thoughts and tangents, you will also hear listener stories and interviews with paranormal professionals, Dead Files clients, and people with personal paranormal experiences. So far, we've spoken to a witch, an intuitive, a shaman, a UFO abductee, and a handful of Dead Files clients. We're always looking for more cool and interesting people to talk to. So if you're interested, please reach out to theactivitycontinues at gmail.com or fill out the guest intake form on our website, theactivitycontinues.com. We'd love to hear from you. Come join us where the The activity activity continues. her song, The Velvets, in between sections. But we're here today because, if not for Melissa, Volsteadland would not even exist. (laughs) Hey, Melissa. Hi. (laughs) So you have an interesting story that sparked this whole thing. I do. I do. So several years ago now, um, my husband is a realtor. And I work with him and we were helping our friend (laughs) sell their house. And um, this was a beautiful Victorian, three-story Victorian house in Uptown, Minneapolis. And um, I suppose I should backtrack and explain that throughout my life, I've had a few instances where I'll experience things that I can't really explain. And some of the time, those things kind of come back around and get confirmed. And so this was one of those moments. Um, We were hosting an open house. And between groups of people who were looking at the house, uh, we were just sitting in the living room. My husband and I, we, you know, our phones. And um, so there was no one else in the house. And suddenly, at the other end of the room, I kind of felt or in my mind saw a man standing at the other end of the room looking at the fireplace that was across from me. And he was dressed in, my guess was at the time, 1920s type of attire. And um, I just kind of let it sit for a minute. And then in my mind, I started thinking, oh, what's your name? And uh, I got in my mind again, um, Jim Cam. (laughs) And I thought, well, that's okay. And then all of a sudden I thought, oh, like Jim Cameron, the filmmaker. Okay, now I'm just making stuff up. So I kind of let it go. But I could hear also in my mind always um, like a ragtime piano type music and clinking drinkware and laughing women. And it felt kind of like a party. uh, But in my gut, I I felt like it was more of a commercial situation, like like almost like a bar. Um, which the house was not. And so I thought that was a little odd too. But again, you know, I, I have a vivid imagination. And so I chalked it up to that. Um, and then people came in to look at the house. So, you know, that kind of dispelled everything. Um, and when the 
you know, we had a few more groups and then we were shutting down the house for the end of our open house. And my husband went and turned off the lights on the second and third floors. And I took care of the basement and then the main floor. And when I got to the dining room, uh, the dining room had some wood paneling on the bottom third, maybe, of the walls. And I just had this instinct to bend down and place my hands on that wood paneling and kind of feel around almost like I thought I could maybe find a secret compartment. Um, and while I was doing that, crouched low to the ground, I felt Jim Cam, <laughs> I thought, um, kind of behind me say, he kind of whispered, we're bootleggers. And he kind of whispered it, the tone was, he was proud of how good he was at what he does. It was almost like, you're not gonna find anything. I, you know, I know what I'm doing and like, who do you think you are, Missy? You're not gonna find anything. Not mean, but just that kind of a, you know, really confident. Still, I thought I'm probably imagining this. Um, and eventually as we were driving home, I started looking on my phone and trying to find out more about, you know, Minneapolis, 1920s, bootleggers, prohibition. And the, the name Kid Can with two N's, which, you know, if you look at it, um, Written out, mm. Jim Cam and Kid Can with two ends are pretty darn close. I could mm -hmm. see if we were a hundred years apart through time, how that miscommunication <laughs> might have happened. And uh, and sure enough, as everyone listening to Volsteadland knows, um, he was around back in that day, and he, I'm sure, was a very confident man. <laughs> and I'm sure he um, would have been around clinking drinkware and laughing women quite often and parties and in speakeasies and whatnot. So, um, yeah, that's that that was quite a, a shock when uh, when I found that information, you know, mere hours after experiencing that in that house. Right. So none of it was scary. I didn't feel scared. I didn't feel like he was threatening in any way and obviously long departed but you know sometimes people's energy can be intimidating mm -hmm. I didn't feel that I'm not saying he was a nice guy I'm just <laughs> saying I didn't feel that in that house um but it was <laughs> but it, it was it was really interesting and it and I learned you know a little more about him and, and the history of Minneapolis in that time and I'm so glad that you're doing this podcast to uh expand on that thanks all right well thanks for joining me today well, yeah. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you again. Good to see you. We'll have to get together in real, real space pretty soon. Yes. Yes, definitely. Now that we can. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Great. Well, thank you again. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Bye. So that's Melissa's story. Um, she told me that right after it happened. And I started looking into Kid Can, as did she, and we thought it was really interesting. And then she had asked me to do to write up a little something about him for her podcast, The Skylark Bell, because every once a month, I believe she does on um, on Friday, she does this Phantom Friday and tells a ghost story. And she wanted to tell that ghost story, which she did. And you can go back and listen to it on her podcast. Um, but she had asked me to write up a little something about him that she could use for that. And when I started researching that, I'm like, there's a lot of stuff here. A lot of stuff. Yeah. So I thought that could be its own 
And here we are. And here we are. So why do you think she felt his energy in your old house? Well, do you think maybe he used to live there or maybe partied there? Or? I don't think he lived there. Um, a lot of people claim that he lived in their house. I don't think he did live in ours. I don't have any record of that or I've never heard that from anybody. But um, being a bootlegger, I believe he did run parties. You know, mm. he probably held parties or at least showed up to parties. And how interesting that you're somebody who hosts a lot of parties. Right. We did. <laughs> we hosted a lot of parties in that house. And so did the people that lived there before us. And they were there from the 70s. And also the Temple Israel is just a block and a half away. And I had heard from neighbors when we first moved in that there were tunnels from the synagogue to some of the houses. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I don't think there was one to ours. At least we never found it. Um, and, you know, as you know, he was Jewish. And I'm sure he went to that temple because everybody did. Um, it's at least that neighborhood was, you know, there were Jewish folks that lived there. So it's quite possible that, um, that you know, he that was one of the neighborhoods he hung out in. And that's basically all that I can cool figure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wish I I wish I'd known that before we were ready to move out. Right? You, know, you could have, have had tried 1920s to make, themed parties. I know. And I could have like <laughs> invited him, tried to make contact. But yeah. We sold the house shortly after that, so um we didn't get a chance to do that. When we last left Izzy, he had been involved in a bank robbery, though probably tangentially. And Prohibition had only been in effect for about three years, so his bootlegging was just beginning, or at least he hadn't been caught until now. We're going to go over that, as well as a couple of shootings, one fatal. So sit back, grab a drink of choice, and join us in 1924 when things start to get real for Isidore Blumenfeld, a.k.a. Kid Can. Speaking of drinks... Amy, want to tell the lovely people what we're drinking today? Sure. So our signature cocktail is the Sidecar. It's traditionally made with cognac, but we ain't fancy. So brandy it is. Mm -hmm. And if we want more than one, it's going to be um, whiskey because <laughs> we only have enough brandy for one each. Um, so I will put the recipe up on the socials and on Patreon. And um, I know that we've read a lot about cocktails that were invented in the era of Prohibition. They were very flavorful because people were trying to mask the taste of badly made alcohol. But according to Liquor.com, that's false. Oh, they say when your drinking experience is an illegal one, you just want to get down to drinking. <laughs> so but like, I would think that if you're just mixing up drinks at home, and you've got the booze already there. You're going to want to doctor it up so it's not make it horrid. taste good. Yeah, yeah. So, a lot of great cocktails came out of this era. That's as true. we've been finding we've out, and discovering a few. Uh huh. Yep. Okay, so let's dig in. In the timeline, we are now at the era of prohibition. The Volstead Act was formally the National Prohibition Act. The Volstead Act was enacted in 1919, taking effect in 1920, specifically to enforce the 18th Amendment prohibition. 
It was named for Andrew Volstead, a Minnesota representative. He served as chairman of the House Judiciary Committee from 1919 to 1923, and he was a champion of the bill and of prohibition. The act was vetoed by Woodrow Wilson, but became law after Congress voted to override the veto. So the three main purposes of the act are, number one, to prohibit intoxicating alcoholic beverages. Number two, to regulate the manufacturing, production, and use and sale of high-proof spirits for purposes other than beverages. And to ensure an ample supply of alcohol and promote its use in scientific research in the development of fuel, dyes, and other lawful industries. It further states <laughs> that no person shall, on or after the date when the 18th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States goes into effect, manufacture, sell, barter, transport, import, export, deliver, furnish, or possess any intoxicating liquor except as authorized in this act. And all provisions of this act shall be liberally construed to the end that the use of intoxicating liquor as a beverage may be prevented. The act included a number of exceptions and exemptions. Um, many of these were used to evade the law's intended purpose. For example, the act allowed a physician to prescribe whiskey for his patients, but limited the amount that could be prescribed. Subsequently, the House of Delegates of the American Medical Association voted to submit to Congress a bill to remove the limit of the amount of whiskey that could be prescribed and questioned the ability of a legislature to determine the therapeutic value of any substance. And it's also um, interesting to note that it was never illegal to drink during Prohibition. The 18th Amendment in the Volstead Act included the instructions for enforcing prohibition, never barred the consumption of alcohol, just making it, selling it, and shipping it for mass production and consumption. It's a little hard to drink it when you can't get your hands on it. Right. And that's why speakeasies were invented. Um, where did the name speakeasy come from, you may ask? <laughs> speakeasies received their name from police officers who had trouble locating the bars. People tended to speak quietly in the bar, and bartenders would request that patrons speak easy while inside, nice. as to not draw the attention of the cops sure, outside. Sure. So speakeasies were illegal taverns that sold alcoholic beverages, and these bars were also sometimes called blind pigs or blind tigers. They were often operated by organized crime members. So... What these people would do is they would make it an attraction that they could sell tickets to, oftentimes involving animals, like come and pay for a ticket to see my tiger, and then we'll give you a drink with the cost of your ticket. So that was a way around. Would there that. actually be a tiger there too? Yes. Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. Uh, or a pig. So it was which, like false I mean, advertising. I, want, I would probably be more inclined to pay to see a tiger than a pig, but that's just me. Yeah. Um, also, blind... Um, referred to um, the seller's identity being concealed. Okay. So you didn't know who was hosting sure. the attraction. Okay. Section 29 of the act allowed 200 gallons, um, the equivalent of about 1,750 milliliter bottles, of non-intoxicating cider and fruit juice to be made each year at home. 
1,750 milliliter bottles is per, a lot of Per booze. household? Per household. Yikes. Uh, but not to exceed 0.5% alcohol by volume. So this meant that people could make um, intoxicating cider and mm. fruit juices, um, which that I that would be fine by yeah. me. I like cider. I do too. Okay. Did you watch the um, Ken Burns documentary on PBS? I did not. Okay. I did. Twice. <laughs> um, the first time I watched it, honestly, I just had it on on my one monitor and then I was working on the other on stuff. So I was only half paying attention. Um, but I did. I think I did in going through it twice. I think I saw most everything. Uh, it was very well done. If you've got five and a half hours, I recommend watching it. But what I learned from that is that prohibition was really a one issue thing. It was about one issue politics, as we now have today. Um, they believe that alcohol was the biggest problem and that if it were just taken away, that everything else would be perfect. It was the scapegoat for all problems of society at hmm. the time. Um, and politicians voted dry so that they could get reelected. But then they continued drinking regularly. Of course. Yeah. I was going to make a connection to um, the pro. <laughs> we're not going to do that. Um, women were never ones to go to saloons when booze was legal, but once the saloons closed and speakeasies opened up in their place, women flocked to them. Even children drank because there were no regulations. Really? Mm -hmm. Alcoholism in women was almost non-existent before prohibition, but it was actually a huge problem by the end of it. Interesting. Mm -hmm. They go right up to the bar. They put their foot on the brass railing, they order, they're served, they bend the elbow, they hoist. They toss down the feminine esophagus, the brew that was really meant for men. Stout and wicked men. The last barrier is down. The citadel has been stormed and taken. There's no longer any escape, no harbor of refuge, no haven, no sanctuary, no hiding place, no hole or corner. No burrow or catacomb, no nook amongst the ruins of civilization where the hounded male may seek his fellow and strut his stuff, safe from the atmosphere and presence of femininity. A man might as well do his drinking at home with his wife and daughters, and there was never any fun in that. Don Marquis I just wanted to say a little bit about Pauline Sabin because she's kind of my hero. Um, I, this is from the documentary, too. Um, she could probably warrant a podcast all on her own, but I'll just do a quick overview here. So I put a link to her portion of the PBS doc in the show notes, if you want to check that out. She was the first woman to serve on the Republican National Committee and had originally supported prohibition, but later came to her senses. The prohibition law, she said, was, quote, written for weaklings and derelicts and has divided the nation into three parts, wets, dries, and hypocrites. <laughs> she actually had my dream home feature that in her library on a wall of books, there was a button. And when you pushed it, the wall slid open to a secret room where she kept her wine. <laughs> uh, she left the Republican Party in 1929 and created the Women's Organization for National Prohibition Reform, and it grew to 1.5 million women. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the president who eventually repealed it. Within nine days of taking office, he asked Congress to do three things, reorganize the bank, cut federal spending, and make 3-2 beer legal. While the dry minority in Congress were repeating their rhetoric against it, others chanted, vote, vote, we want beer. 
We want beer. We want beer. <laughs> and so on April 7th, 1933, you could legally buy beer for the first time since 1920. Then by December, prohibition was over completely. I want a secret wine room. I know. Yes. I've always, since I was little, wanted a secret room, like a library where you push a button or pull a book yep. and the whole thing twists around like in uh, mm -hmm. Young Frankenstein. <laughs> yep. I think I saw Young Frankenstein at a very young age and <laughs> that stuck with me. So Prohibition began January 17th, 1920, and ended December 5th, 1933. This is where Isidore Blumenfeld, a.k.a. Kid Can, really came into his own. He worked alongside his two brothers, Harry and Yiddy, whose real name was Jacob. Both of these guys used the name Bloom because the family had been told that Blumenfeld was, or Blumenfield, was too difficult. <laughs> that was hard for the Swedes. <laughs> Right. Okay. So just over a year after the Payne Avenue bank robbery, late on a Friday night, early Saturday morning, around 3 a.m., on April 19th, 1924, Isidore, Izzy, was outside the Vienna Cafe on Nicollet Avenue, downtown Minneapolis. He was there with his pal, Abe Perkansky, who was a cab driver. The original story Izzy told is that an argument started about whether he or Abe should take a certain woman back to her home. Seeing as Abe was the cab driver, I don't know why this was a discussion, but Izzy and women, and that's, that's how he was. The woman in question is Patience Barnes. Put a pin in that name. A man named Charles Goldberg stepped in to separate them and was shot. The police put together this story. Izzy, still going by Harry Bloom, and Abe were outside this cafe and we were arguing. Blows were exchanged. They were brawling over a girl. Abe pulled out a gun. Izzy took it away. Goldberg stepped in to act as a mediator, trying to separate the two men when, quote, a shot rang out and Goldberg fell to the sidewalk. Huh. When the police got there, everyone on the scene had a conflicting story about what happened. Of course they did. Of course they did. It was 3 a.m. I assume everybody was drunk. Then I remembered its prohibition, so I figure the Vienna Cafe must have been a speakeasy. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it was. I can't find anything on that. If anyone listening knows for sure or knows has any details about the Vienna Cafe, I'd love to hear it because I Googled the shit out of it, but I can't find anything. The newspaper says that it was at 322 Nicollet Avenue. Um, but I do. I did find a business card from the Vienna Cafe in Minneapolis. It was on Washington Avenue. But I think that was later. I think it moved. moved. Okay. But I'm not sure. Again, if anyone knows, hit me up. Let me know. The victim, Charles Goldberg, in the hospital said, quote, everything took place so suddenly. He refused to divulge to the authorities who did the shooting. He said it was an accident and, quote, didn't want to get anybody into trouble. Then lapsed into a coma. Wow. Yeah. He was at General Hospital, which is now HCMC. Hennepin County Medical Center. Hennepin County Medical Center, yes, for those who are not from here. Goldberg was shot in the spine, and since he did not die right away, they did not file any charges until they knew if he would live. Sadly, he didn't. He passed nine days later on Monday the 28th. Izzy's friend, the cab driver, Abe, had been arrested for first-degree assault, and he was out on $10,000 bail. But he turned himself in when he learned that Goldberg had died. Mm. The newspapers say that on May 5th, 
Harry Bloom, turned himself in, saying he waited so long, about a week, because his mother and sister had been seriously ill. He was formally charged with murder after signing his confession and released under a bond of $10,000 with the hearing set for May 12th. Interesting that that he was let free for that time. I mean, I thought murderers had to stay in jail till the trial. Yeah, I mean, I guess if if I don't know if that means he paid some of that 10k. But from what we learned in the addendum from last week, right. last episode, that if you you can make arrangements to not even pay anything as long as you promise to come back. And if right. you don't come back, then you have to pay all of it. And what I thought was interesting that I didn't know is that when you do pay your bail, you get it back at the end of your trial, even if you're guilty. Huh. Yeah. So anyway, um, his criminal record that I have says he was arrested May 1st, not May 5th, and charged with the murder of Charles Goldberg. I'm not sure which date is correct, but either way, he bonded out and was free. Izzy's side of the story is that he took the gun away from Abe much earlier in the evening when Abe was in a fight with someone else, a guy named Robert Royan. Here's a quote from Izzy. This is from the newspaper. I held the gun in my hand when the fatal shot was fired. I took the gun away from Perkansky earlier in the evening when Perkansky and Robert Royan had a fight. I separated the men at that time. Later, they went to it again. This time, Goldberg separated them. When Perkansky was about to get into his taxi cab, he asked me for the gun. I refused at first, but later consented. In pulling the gun from my pocket, it was discharged. The bullet striking Goldberg. Really? Sure, Jan. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think that's how it went yeah. down. So uh, he's out on bail. He's lucky that people believed him. <laughs> because, yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. So in a related story, four months later, on July 23rd, Abe Perkansky and a woman were pulled over near Stevenson County, Illinois, and the police found six suitcases in the car. When the cop grabbed one, it gurgled. Oh. <laughs> it was discovered that he was carrying 119 gallons of pure grain alcohol. 119 gallons is a lot That's of booze. a lot of booze in your suitcases. Yes. <laughs> uh, they rightly assumed he was working for a liquor smuggling racket. I wonder who. Mm-hmm. Abe then tried to bribe the officer by showing him a receipt for a car repair, telling him, quote, I paid $97 for fixing my car. I'd give five times that much to be free of this trouble. <laughs> That's about $1,500 in today's money. They let Abe drive his own car to the station, uh, the cop following behind. Abe rolled down his window and threw something out. It turned out to be the remnants of a telegram Abe had tried to destroy. The cops were able to retrieve most of it. They could tell it was addressed to Abe at the Sherman Hotel in Chicago, received that day from Minneapolis. The part they could read said, your case continued to August, and then it was cut off. And it was signed by A.M. Carey. Put a pin in that name, too. So the woman in the car with Abe, Patience Barnes, the same woman that he and some other man, uh, either it was Royan or Izzy, were fighting over outside the Vienna Cafe. Okay. Abe was later fined $5,000, which is about eight k today, and given four months in jail after pleading guilty to illegally transporting liquor. The car and the hooch were seized and held by the sheriff. <laughs> it's convenient for the sheriff. 
Okay, so back to the Goldberg murder. Um, December 1st, 1924, so this is seven months after the murder, the grand jury returned a no-bill on the case. What's a no-bill? A no-bill in Minnesota, a grand jury must consist of not more than 23 or fewer than 16 persons and must not proceed unless at least 16 members are present. If 12 grand jurors do not agree that the prosecutor's evidence establishes probable cause, no indictment is issued. This is known as returning a no bill. Hmm. Okay. Also note the attorney in this case for both Abe and Izzy, Archie A.M. Carey, the guy that wrote the telegram. Oh, he's their lawyer. He's their lawyer. Okay. Uh, We've heard that name before and we will hear it again. Yep. I guess once you're a lawyer for the quote unquote mob, um, you all you, you stay that way. <laughs> um, the murder was ruled an accident and Izzy served no time. I would like to note at this time that the Hennepin County attorney was Floyd B. Olson, who we touched briefly on in the last episode. Yes. So I feel like now is a good a time as any to expand a little bit on Floyd on old Floyd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Floyd B. Olson lived in North Minneapolis in the same neighborhood where Izzy's family lived. Olson was not Jewish, but lived in this predominantly Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. I don't know a ton about the Jewish faith and their rules, but I do know that on the Sabbath or Shabbat, Saturday, the day of rest, Orthodox Jews were unable to do things like run errands and shop. Um, The Sabbath starts a few minutes before sunset on Friday and runs until an hour after sunset on Saturday. So it lasts about 25 hours. God commanded the Jewish people to observe the Sabbath and keep it holy as the fourth of the Ten Commandments. So there is a list of prohibited activities on Wikipedia, and it's clear that these folks were literally supposed to do nothing, just rest, because there are 40 things on that list. They can't even write a letter or extinguish a fire. They're not supposed to light a fire either. Um, I know from friends that they're not even supposed to flip a light switch. So I assume that's really? the modern day equivalent of lighting a fire. Okay. I don't know. I'm just guessing. So they just hang out in the dark? Yeah. Uh, maybe <laughs> they just go to bed. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you can't even light a candle. I don't know. Any of our Jewish listeners want to weigh in on that? Let us know how, how that worked. Uh, I just know it's very strict. So um, since Olson was one of the few non-Jewish men around, he ran errands for the Jewish people in the neighborhood. He was called the Shabbos Goy. I feel like this would have been seen as a workaround in God's eyes. <laughs> but, um, right. you know, whatever. Uh, the point is that Floyd knew Izzy and his family very well. He was about 10 years older than Izzy. Floyd Olson was the Hennepin County attorney in 1920. He moved up from assistant when the sitting attorney was fired for accepting bribes. So much corruption. I know. <laughs> and, and he's honestly one of the good ones. He was reelected in 1922 and 1926. It's been speculated that for some criminal problems that kid can faced, Olson was the reason he got out of them. Olson also went on to become governor in 1931, which I do believe was very beneficial to um, Izzy in the mid 30s when things got very serious for him. Uh, in August of 1936, Floyd B. Olson died of stomach cancer while still in office. And I don't want to get any more in the weeds about Olson. It's probably too late for that. But um, honestly, other than letting criminals go, he seemed to be a pretty decent guy. He prosecuted the local branch of the Ku Klux Klan. Okay. He proposed the state unemployment insurance system. 
Thank you, sir. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that has been very helpful for the last year and a half. Um, he was against prohibition and, in fact, was allegedly one of Izzy's best customers. He is remembered as the Wellstone of his time. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. He's buried at Lakewood Cemetery, so we can go visit him. Excellent. Yeah. When are we going to go on our tour of Izzy locations? We got to do that. Well, we do have reservations for Volstead's yes. uh, next Friday. Yes. So um, we can, we'll be taking some pictures and maybe do a little video and... Drop yeah. off some business cards drop to the bartender. Like, drop them on all the tables. <laughs> Unleash the power of stories anywhere, anytime with Audible. Immerse yourself in gripping stories, insightful knowledge, and captivating characters anytime, anywhere. Audible is your library on the go. With hundreds of thousands of titles across every genre, there's a world of reading waiting for your ears. Listen while you cook, clean, or commute. Free your eyes to conquer your day, all while feeding your mind. Start your 30-day free trial today and discover the joy of listening. Go to audibletrial.com slash TAC. That stands for The Activity Continues. With your free 30-day trial, you get one credit, two credits if you're a Prime member, good for any premium selection titles you like, yours to keep. You get the Audible Plus catalog of podcasts, audiobooks, guided wellness, and Audible originals. Listen all you want. No credits needed. Again, that is audibletrial.com slash TAC. If you're a regular listener, you know we love our three spirit drinks. They are the non-alcoholic spirit drinks that are taking the world by storm. Three Spirit is a range of three distinct drinks, each with its own unique flavor and effect. The Livener is a refreshing and invigorating drink that is perfect for starting your day or night. The Social Elixir is a smooth and sophisticated drink that's perfect for sharing with friends. And the Nightcap is a calming and relaxing drink that's perfect for winding down before bed. All three drinks are made with plant-based ingredients and are free from alcohol, gluten, and sugar. They are also vegan and ethically sourced. So, whether you're looking for a delicious and refreshing drink to enjoy on its own, or a sophisticated non-alcoholic alternative to cocktails, Three Spirit is the perfect choice for you. Try Three Spirit today and discover the difference. Visit us. ThreeSpiritDrinks.com and use the promo code The Activity Continues for 15% off your entire order. Cheers! That one that was, was the best cheer. one yet. Yeah. <laughs> So in the 1920s, Kid Cannon and his brothers got into the bootlegging business. He became the, quote, king of liquor in the upper Midwest. They called his bootlegging a liquor syndicate, and he was also called the original Teflon Don. The famous Teflon Don was John Gotti. Oh, okay, yeah. From the book Augie's Secrets by Neil Carlin, quote, they started as bootleggers. This was because Jews literally couldn't get hired in any job. So if you had ambition, you went into bootlegging. Iggy's... Iggy. I'm just going to change his name. Uh, Izzy's 
arrest record shows several arrests for liquor-related crimes, and he was deep into bootlegging at this time. He was organizing alcohol runs from Chicago to Minneapolis and back, and he also smuggled actual whiskey from Canada and the Gulf of Mexico. Prohibition made him what they called a high-volume bootlegger. For the most part, he never paid for any of his booze-related crimes other than paying a few fines and serving one year in the Hennepin County Workhouse in 1934. He had close ties to both the Chicago outfit and the Genovese crime family. Oh, I've heard of them. Yeah, he was big time. I believe the Chicago outfit is Al Capone. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, During this time, this is as you were talking about, Businesses could qualify for licenses that allowed them to transport alcohol for manufacturing purposes. As we mentioned in a previous episode, too, he had a fake barbershop company that may have existed only on paper known as La Pompadour (laughs) that allowed him to buy industrial grade alcohol, which he routed to the stills he had set up near Fort Snelling. There they distilled it and turned it into 139 proof liquor that he sold for $10 a gallon. There were other stills, mostly in Stearns County, where they made moonshine called Minnesota 13. It was a premium quality, twice distilled and properly aged whiskey. Apparently, it tasted remarkably like Canadian Club. Have you ever had Canadian Club? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. is it good? Yeah, it's not it's bad. Fine. It's a blended whiskey. Okay. Yeah. I don't know my brown liquors that well. I mean, I just know that I like most of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did a little online shopping, and you can still buy a bottle of Minnesota 13. Uh, you can get it at Total Wine. But let me read you the reviews. <laughs> I took a sip, hated it. Tried mixing it with something else. Worthless. Didn't even finish the first glass. Dumped the rest of the drink and the rest of the 750 milliliter down the drain. I probably have cleaner pipes, but that would be its only redeeming quality. And I can buy Drano for way less. <laughs> <laughs> That's on the Total Wine website. Yeah. <laughs> Smells awful. Tastes worse. Did, did you get a bottle? I think we should try no, it. No, I know. I, I kind of want to. <laughs> Maybe we should. Just so we can dump it down the drain. So then this other review. It smells and tastes like horse sweat. <laughs> <laughs> Leaves an aftertaste for hours. Lingering bad breath afterwards. Dumped it down the drain. We'll use the rest of the bottle for lighting brush piles on fire or cleaning car parts. <laughs> I love it. Sign me up. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Kid Cannon and his brothers made frequent trips to Stearns County, Minnesota to purchase the Minnesota 13 moonshine from local farmers. Some was disposed of in the Twin Cities, but most of it was sold to the Chicago outfit, which was then bossed by Al Capone. Some of their regular customers were allegedly George Dayton. Yes, of that Dayton family. And Floyd B. Olson, which we had mentioned earlier. 10,000 Jews were making booze without the state's permission to fill the needs of a million Swedes who voted for prohibition. Walter Liggett. Okay, so um, one of our resources had a funny story for us. This was sent to me on next door. My grandfather worked for Kid Can, running moonshine and making it until the feds raided his place and took him to jail. He was told by Can that he had to or something would happen to his family. When the feds raided my grandfather's house for illegal making of moonshine, my grandfather poured the mash 
from making the booze. They had chickens and the chickens ate the mash and they got drunken chickens walking around. The feds destroyed <laughs> the still and he went to jail. Oh, wow. <laughs> I love the idea. The a drunken, drunken chicken? chicken? <laughs> I think that should be a drink. The drunken chicken. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I asked her if Kid Can ever repaid her grandfather for taking the fall for him and she said, nope. A big old nope. <laughs> um, a potentially interesting side note is he had a rival. His name was David Davy the Jew Berman. <laughs> he was also a bootlegger and really wanted to run Minneapolis. He's the father of a woman named Susan Berman, who any real true crime fan knows because of her involvement with uh, the famous jinx subject, Robert Durst. Did you ever see the jinx? Yeah, I yeah. did. I did. So you remember yeah. his friend, Susan, that was murdered? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's okay. David Berman's her father. Davy the Jew. Davy the Jew. The next entry in Kid Can's criminal record is from September of 1927. He was charged in federal court as Harry Bloom with John Sisson with violation of the National Prohibition Act on one count, nuisance, Noel Prost, as to both defendants. So I looked up Noel Prost. I'd never heard that before. It is short for Noli Prosequi, which is Latin for we shall no longer prosecute. Hmm. At a trial, this is an entry made on the record by the prosecutor in a criminal case or a plaintiff in a civil case stating that he will no longer pursue the matter. So basically charges are dropped. Right. Um, I searched John Sisson because that was a new name to me. And I found out that two months before this arrest on July 12th, he and Harry Blon, B-L-O-N-N, uh, no wonder this didn't show up when I searched Harry Bloom. They were arrested and a car with them seized with over 425 quarts of alleged liquor when police raided the Marquette Auto livery. Harry was to be charged with possession and transportation of liquor, but it's not on his arrest record. But too bad I don't have Harry Blonde's arrest record because... Whatever. How many names did this guy have? <laughs> well, I don't know if he really had that or if it was just a misprint in the newspaper. But it was not on his arrest record. So either he gave a fake name again or it, you know, the like I said, the um, the arrest record that I have or the criminal record I have of his is that someone typed it out. Somebody who was researching him long before me. I don't know where it came from because magically all the police records in Minneapolis were destroyed many years ago. I think I had heard that it was in a fire, but I tried to Google it and I couldn't find anything about a fire at the Minneapolis precincts. But I was trying to find out more about this, but I can't find any details. I did find an article from 1976 about how a police chief named Johnson destroyed a bunch of internal affairs files, but nothing about older stuff. So again, if anybody knows, um, let me know. I was Googling to find the details about what, where these um, police records could have gone. And I saw a Newsweek article dated July 15th of this year. This is 2021. The, yeah, this is the day I was writing this. And there was a story that when the Minneapolis third precinct was overrun by protesters and they burned it down, mm-hmm. those at the second precinct destroyed, quote, a cache of documents, including inactive case files, search warrants and records of confidential informants. Really? Yeah, it was in Newsweek this week. Huh. So um, I don't know why 
wasn't on the news or anything. But when I Googled again yesterday to try and see if I could find it, anything about the, the records from a long time ago, those stories came up and they were in a bunch of different news sites. Wow. So, yeah, nothing's changed. <laughs> Kid Can was arrested a few more times for liquor violations, but either was just released or he paid his fine and moved on. It's not as if the guy wasn't stinking rich. Okay. So I want to tell you about another incident that Izzy was involved in. This was February 3rd, 1928. So about four years later, after the um, Vienna Cafe, the Minneapolis Cotton Club had recently opened just a month before when a man named Jack Sachter visited and got a little too friendly with the entertainment, a woman called Valencia Ney, a.k.a. Shuffle Along. Shuffle Along. Her name was Shuffle Along. I love it. <laughs> Several patrons asked him to stay away from her, but he kept assuring them that he knew her personally. Former sheriff of Huron, South Dakota, Vern Miller, a well-known bootlegger, stepped in. He scared the guy off, but Sachter had only left to go get some cops. Officers Barnard Wynn and James... Ugh, I'm so worried about saying his last name wrong, I can't say James. <laughs> James. And James... Trepanier knocked on the door of the Cotton Club. Izzy, Kid Can, answered and told them, trouble's over, we're closing up. But they pushed through and started searching people. Officer Wynn left the room to call for the wagon, and the shooting started in the room that Officer Trepanier was in. Wynn heard the commotion, came back, and was shot. Miller, the former sheriff, started shooting, and other patrons joined in. Wasn't it great that everybody had, a, had gun? a gun? Just yeah. Yeah. haul it out and just start shooting. Um, both policemen were shot, Wynn in the leg and Trepanier in the shoulder and stomach. The reports vary, of course. In one, it says that Kid Can was the one who made the first move when Wynn went to make the phone call. But in the words of Trepanier, I turned around and the next moment the firing began. I heard three shots in quick succession and turned around and saw Miller shooting point blank at me. So in his own words, Miller is the one that shot him. And this is a quote. Meanwhile, a general bombardment was going on. I saw Wynn come running in, firing as he went by me. Kennedy and Lawler ran for the door. Kid Can hid under a table. Wynn found him there and pulled him out. He demanded if the kid had shot me and Kid Can denied it claiming that he was shot himself, end quote. So was Kid Can shot? Yeah, he was okay. shot in the leg. So Miller got away. 30 people were arrested that night. Kid Can was one of them. 30 people were arrested? 30, yeah. Because okay. I, I assume they just so, round up everybody. Yeah. Like they out. did at the Vienna. And then they just, you know, ask him a couple of questions and send him home. Miller got away. Kid Can went from jail, hospital, back and forth because he was... He was fine, and then he went back to jail, and then he was he, his wound got worse, and he went back to the hospital. While he was in the hospital, um, his hospital room was right next door to Officer Terpenier. If you thought he shot him, do you think you'd put him right next door? Probably. And it says it was guarded. Handcuffed to his bed. Yeah, like they so. do. Police ordered all clubs to close at midnight, and the Cotton Club was forced to close entirely. The police urged the mayor to revoke its license. It started an investigation to look at all establishments in the city and revoke licenses in cases where, quote, drinking and loose conduct are permitted and questionable characters are allowed to congregate. 
While they did end up closing all the cafes and nightclubs at midnight, some of these cafes fed people who worked the, quote, night trade and had to be open for food. But all singing, dancing, and the like will have to stop at midnight. Izzy was reported to be in the hospital, but not held. Until March 8th, when it was reported that he was charged with assault in the first-degree shooting of Trey Panier, even though all previous reports said that Miller shot him. In Paul McAbee's book, John Dillinger Slept Here, he says that the police originally said that Miller was the shooter, but then changed their minds, saying it was a case of mistaken identity. These two dudes look nothing alike. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, the officer that was shot about 30 says, yeah, yeah. Um, and so in the when I do the video, I'll post in this part, I'll post a picture of the two guys next to each other. They look nothing alike. Vern Miller is blonde. Mm. He's a Swede or, I don't know, Norwegian or something. By February 7th, they had come up with three names. Vernon C. Miller, this former sheriff, R.L. Lawler, and Bob Kennedy. They formed a case against Kennedy for first-degree assault and went to trial in October of 1928. Trepanier left his hospital bed to appear in person to testify against Kennedy, who at this point was being charged with second-degree assault. I'm not sure why that changed from first to second. But he testified that Kennedy was there, but he never saw him do any shooting. The case was dismissed during the trial, but before it went to jury for lack of evidence. You'd think that the grand jury would have put a nix on that before we got this right. Far, but. <laughs> um, but the other people were still supposed to stay on trial. Vern Miller, Harry Bloom, R.L. Lawler, who says his real name is George Bryant. Um, Lawler Bryant pled not guilty Izzy Harry was indicted but not held, and Miller was still on the run. The next report is that, quote, on motion of county attorney Floyd B. Olson, indictments against three men in charging them with participating in the shooting of patrolman James Trepanier and Bernard Wynn last February were nulled late yesterday by District Judge E.F. White. So nulled means not going to prosecute. Another story I found says that the authorities dropped the case because they couldn't find enough witnesses. There were 30, 30 people, people arrested. There. Yeah. So um, Robert Kennedy, R.L. Lawler, or Bryant, and Harry Bloom all off the hook, but Vern Miller is still missing. Um, I know I said that I wasn't going to get too, too deep into some of these secondary or even tertiary characters, but this guy... So in 1922, when he was the sheriff of Huron, South Dakota, he was charged with embezzling $4,000 in state funds and he disappeared. Three months later, he was captured in Minnesota. It was discovered that he embezzled even more and was eventually sent to South Dakota State Pen, but was paroled in November 1924. He was bootlegging pretty much under the radar until the Cotton Club shooting. That sort of ramped things up for him. In July of 1933, he was named as a machine gunner in the Union Station Massacre. He and another man attempted to free their friend, Frank Jelly Nash, who was being transported from train to car on his way back to Leavenworth from where he had recently escaped. Miller shot four officers and accidentally killed the guy he was trying to free. A lot of things happened on trains uh-huh. back yeah. then. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and uh, Miller was suffering from late-stage syphilis. So at this point, his brain was probably jello. <laughs> um, I found that he was reputedly a member of the Dapper Dan Hogan mob. So you know I had to Google that. Right. Because, come on. So that name alone sent me down another rabbit hole. Super interesting. But I stopped 
because we have to finish this episode at some point. Yes. Uh, listeners, let me know if you think we should dive into Dapper Dan in another episode or another season. <laughs> anyway, Vern Miller was found beaten and strangled to death shortly after the massacre. Huh. Probably because he killed one of his own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. So uh, the policemen who were shot, little update on them. James Trepanier was paralyzed from the waist down. He could use his hands, but little else. By 1932, he became a jeweler and opened his own jewelry store, mostly fixing watches. He had a special device made so that he could drive a car, so he could use his legs a little bit, not much. Here's a quote from him. I guess the seemingly impossible can be done when one knows he just has to do it. I mean, it's good, <laughs> right? Sense. Yeah. Um, I have a photo of him in his car. I'll post in the socials and it'll be included in the Patreon video. He lived for 10 more years with his injuries before passing away in September of 1938 from the injuries he sustained in the shooting. He spent most of the last 10 years of his life in and out of the hospital, except one day early on when he reported to the police precinct in a wheelchair for roll call. But he never went back to the force. Um, the last four years he spent exclusively in the hospital. He had a wife and two daughters. Potentially interesting side note, <laughs> in an article dated May 14th, so just the same, the same year as the shooting, um, there was a story about his wife. She had pricked her hand on attack and had contracted blood poisoning. Oh, no. She was in the hospital, but expected to recover. One of his daughters had a heart condition. So when her father was wounded, she was not told. When she got stronger, sometime between the shooting and May, she was informed and relapsed. Wow. It okay. listed her condition as serious. But she must have survived, as did the wife, as they were both mentioned 10 years later in his obituary. But that's a lot of bad juju, mm -hmm. that family dealing with. When I inquired on Facebook about the Cotton Club's location, some nice soul posted a link to a great article on the shootout. I'll post that link in the show notes in case you want to read it. From it, I learned that on May 15, 1938, so the same year that the other officer died, Officer Bernard Wynn came home after assisting a double drowning in the Mississippi River and shot himself in the head. <gasps> I also confirmed this via local newspapers. So for those keeping track of Kid Can's aliases, uh, this time the papers called him Harry Bloom with, or Blum with a U. Um, also spelled it with two O's. Uh, Kid Can, of course, and a new one, H.B. Bloomfield. So apparently you could just give any name you wanted back in the day. Were people not required to carry identification? I guess not. I looked it up and it was, um, people had ID cards up until about 1919. And then they kind of went away until 1939 when they started making people have, no, I shouldn't say making, I don't know if they made them, but they offered right. ID cards. So apparently you can just be whoever you want to be mm -hmm. during that time. Convenient. Yeah. I think so, especially if you're a hooligan. <laughs> I want to note that I don't really think Kid Can did any of the shooting this time either. I mean, I'm sure he had a gun. Everybody He's did. He's just always there. He's always there. But he was hiding under a table when the shooting happened, which gives some credibility to the story about how he got his name. Hiding in the can. Right. So you know how he got the name Kid Can? Well, when anybody start firing guns, he dive for the bathroom. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Volsteadland. Tune in next time when Isidore Blumenfeld 
kid can, finds himself in some more sticky situations. There's a murder, a kidnapping, and a couple of really vicious attacks. Will he wiggle out of these as well? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode and visit us on all of our social media platforms for extra content. Volstedland is produced by me, Amy, at Whimsical Productions and is part of the Collected Sounds Network. Thanks for listening. Okie doke.